following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Ariel Pink. Last week, while watching Alex Gibney's fascinating, epic 248-minute documentary for HBO about Frank Sinatra, I was overwhelmed by how much power Sinatra had amassed and consolidated for himself as a pop performer at the height of the empire in mid-century America. I thought I pretty much knew the Sinatra story, but Gibney fills in the details with a tidal wave of archival footage that I had never seen, and it was so hypnotic that though I thought I was going to watch part one one night, and then if I was still interested, maybe I'd watch part two the next night or later in the week, but after part one ends with Sinatra's comeback, and you're wiped out by not only the intensity of Gibney's approach, but also of Sinatra's tenacity, I went to the kitchen, ate something quickly, and then watched part two, completely wrapped by the story that unfolds for the following two hours, the big years, the great Great records, Vegas, a pop performer whose life mirrored the century he came of age in. Sinatra's trajectory was the century's trajectory, a self-made king. People forget that Sinatra was the first modern pop performer, the original Justin Bieber in a way, complete with thousands of screaming teenage girls mobbing his early performances. This phenomenon had not happened before. But Sinatra's story is really about pragmatism, defeat, loss, pain, romantic disappointment that nearly wrecked him in the guise of Ava Gardner. And turning these things, these feelings, into art, deepening the songs he was simply performing. He didn't write the songs. And because of this feeling, he both caught and created the mood of a nation, connecting with a massive audience that seems unthinkable now. The Gibney film skirts some big stories, the death of his mother, the Hollywood movies he made in the 1960s and into the 70s. And you are reminded at times that the documentary was made with the approval of the Sinatra estate. And yes, at times it seems that we are seeing a kind of settling of the scores, especially when explaining Sinatra's disillusionment with John F. Kennedy after he had campaigned incessantly for him and then was rebuked because of the mob ties that Sinatra engineered to help Kennedy win that election. But it really stays on point that Sinatra was an artist and pain and regret and loss informed his greatest work. Again, he wasn't a songwriter, but he rewrote the songs he sang by his vocal inflections and phrasing that doomed pragmatism permeated everything. That's life. Summer wind. It was a very good year. My way. Sinatra was also open in interviews and just joking around drunk on stage with a Rat Pack, an Empire performer who believed in the Empire. How could he not? It built him. He influenced it. He said and did what he wanted to. He could be loose and funny, contradictory at times, outspoken, playful, sometimes lost, sometimes a bully, sometimes haunted, glamorous, argumentative, outspoken, even weird at times. Just a man, unapologetically. In fact, Sinatra never apologized for anything he said or did. That culture didn't really exist then. He was attacked a lot by the press for who he hung out with, his appetite for women, the louche Las Vegas rat pack years, where he single-handedly reinvented that city as a mecca for tourists. The cast he had connections with was vast and amazing and included everybody in Hollywood and Washington, D.C. at some point. He knew everyone. He became somewhat lost in the late 60s, and by the time he retired in 1971, a lot of people thought it was time. In a rock and roll era, Sinatra was beginning to 
to seem vaguely fossilized. And yet, typical Sinatra, he became restless. And so he staged a comeback tour in 1974 and continued to perform to sold-out stadium crowds. Yes, stadium crowds. The crowds got bigger, not smaller, until his death. What was so inspirational about Sinatra is that he lived his life on his own terms, fearless, opinionated, a man of likes and dislikes, sometimes foolish, sometimes brilliant. He moved through the world restlessly with a massive appetite for life. If he tripped up, he brushed himself off and stood up again. There can't be another Sinatra in pop culture because pop culture doesn't work that way anymore. And watching the Gibney film, it may remind you and give you a bit of a chill that maybe the democratization of pop culture hasn't been all that great for pop culture. How would a Sinatra have feared in our new let's censor ourselves and tell the sentimental narrative lie that will all make us feel dreamily better and ignore the realities of life? I hate to think what would happen to a Sinatra in our new corporate culture where everybody is a victim demanding apologies for imaginary slights or refusing to place things within context. He would be probably silenced, forced to refrain from offering opinions, sharing his worldview, which might not be ours, but then we were not yet in the unbearable space of relatability and where everyone has to identify with someone or else they tune out or more typically attack that person for not carrying on the dreadful status quo, whatever that might be. This independent man probably would have been drowned by anti-free speech activists who roamed the world as social justice warriors, and you can imagine their dismay at Sinatra's catalog. He called her a dame in a song, and he's singing, the lady is a tramp, how misogynistic, don't buy his records, boycott his label. When did we enter into this Orwellian world? How did young people become so frightened and resistant to the reality of life that everyone is different, has different values, different opinions than their own? Watching the Sinatra documentary just happened to coincide with having the musician, singer, and songwriter Ariel Pink on the podcast, and I was thinking about freedom. I was thinking about the freedom Ariel Pink has in not only creating the music he wants to create and release unencumbered by record execs or militant producers putting together prefab pop hits, but also expressing himself in the ways he wants to publicly. I followed Ariel ever since 2011, and I've never heard him say anything remotely offensive or something that he needs to apologize for. And yet in the world of dreamy little snowflakes who have very, very sensitive dispositions, yet also enjoy doling out punishment like well-honed sadists, he has gotten into trouble with a mock outrage crowd, and we will be talking about that as well. Listening to Ariel Ping's Haunted Graffiti record before today in uh, the late spring of 2011, about a year after it was released and re- recommended to me by a few people, and uh, I bought it not knowing anything about Ariel Pink. I was just bought it because people had recommended it to me. I was immediately struck by the pop sensibility undermined by a highly eccentric production that kept fighting the melodies, the hooks, but they were still there. And I like the tension this caused on the record. It was both droney and catchy, and there seemed to be a mission here to reimagine pop music, familiar sounding songs in unfamiliar settings, classic pop structures mired in distortion. It jived with the whole notion of not taking pop music too seriously, which is exactly how pop music should be taken. And Arlo Pink has said that it's not about the songs. You can't separate the production from songs. A lackluster song given proper production becomes an amazing song. He's old-fashioned, a romantic, a believer in the lost tracks of late 70s soft rock and early 80s synth pop. Is that a reference to the Alan Parsons project? Is that a, a Motel's reference? It put into doubt the earnest seriousness of pop music, the dreaded twee movement, the aspirational, we're all in this together sentiment that swallowed pop music up in the last decade. It was dissonant, melodic, accessible, but it didn't take itself so seriously. What I didn't know about R.L. Pink was that there were about a dozen albums worth of songs recorded in the last 15 years before before today was released and that I never heard of. And I had no idea that R.L. Pink had been recording music since 1996 when he was 18. At one point, R.L. Pink has said, I'm just this fake musician who really gets off on people thinking that I'm an actual musician. And this postmodern idea has been around in one way or another, from the Sex Pistols to the Replacements. And it's a little disingenuous after making a record as good as Before Today or the follow-up Mature Themes. But this attitude is in line with a generation that has grown up in a DIY culture that is about as far away from the culture of craft that nurtured a Sinatra as Earth is to Neptune. Before Today was followed by Mature Themes and finally a record without Haunted Graffiti called Pom Pom, which was released last fall, an epic 70-minute pop record that has some of R.L. Pink's most gorgeous songwriting. And listening to it is like driving around L.A. at night while KROQ circa 1981 is on the radio. 
In the indie world and increasingly in the mainstream press, the basic facts are well known. Ariel Marcus Rosenberg was born in 1978 and raised in Beverly Wood, a Beverly Hills-connected kind of neighborhood here in Los Angeles, raised by both of his divorced parents, his mother and his Harvard-educated father, and he attended Beverly Hills High. And then he enrolled in Cal Arts, uh, the California Institute of the Arts, in 1997. And from about 1998 to, I guess, 2004, he wrote and recorded about eight albums worth of music. He has said on many occasions that The Cure was his favorite band of all time. He has said that he found the cure prized melody above all else, and that there was, quote-unquote, something unholy, something alive and dead about them at the same time, which appealed to him. And he also called himself a cheeseball goth. The band Animal Collective discovers him and signs him to their imprint and releases his first record in 2004, and away we go. Ariel Pink is loved by fellow provocateur Azalea Banks and loathed by Madonna and Grimes. And we'll, um, we'll get to that later in the podcast, or maybe not. With Kurt Weil, who was on this podcast, saying that Arl Pink single-handedly reasserted the spontaneous DIY authenticity of lo-fi culture, Spin has called Arl Pink's recordings one of the most influential bodies of work in pop music, the side of Nirvana's Nevermind. And Girls frontman Christopher Owens calls Pink the best songwriter of our time. And Ariel is also capable of sparking outrage in the oh-so-earnest left-leaning indie press community. It's not illegal to be racist. This gay marriage stuff pisses me off. I love necrophiliacs, and the really oppressed minority in the modern world are nice white guys. Provocative statements that are made to read the people reacting to these statements more than they are an intense personal credo, though they might be that too. And um, we'll get to how people in the press react to you and your persona, but welcome, Ariel. I'm glad you could come on. I know we had some problems with scheduling. That's my fault, but I'm glad it all worked out. The first thing I want to ask you, and it's because there have been a lot of people on this podcast who are raised out here in Los Angeles, and I'm just curious as to what your memories of growing up in Los Angeles are, and what was it like attending Beverly Hills High in the 90s? I know that's a very kind of simple thing after that intro, but I just have to, I just kind of have to know. And then, of course, all the other things that I bring up, we're going to get to, but I'm just curious how you moved through Beverly Hills High and what you thought of that time. I guess it was the... It's 1990, uh, I was there from 92 to 94, so... Okay, so, sorry, sorry, no, 96, 96. Okay, and I'm just wondering if it, knowing you now and knowing you actually through your music and your persona, I can't imagine that it was an easy fit. Or, or am I wrong? Or was it fun? I mean, I think I, I think I had a more of a, uh, I had to deal with El Rodeo. Oh right, the beforehand, others, right, and right. and and I went there in seventh grade after I graduated from Temple Emanuel Community Day School in sixth grade, which is a small private school, and it was the same class, same same thirty students from, you know, uh, that I that I started with essentially, uh, in in kindergarten. It was a Jewish a reformed Jewish school. It's right here on Burton Way. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the question was, you know, uh, where do we go afterwards? Uh, there was always a. There was never really that much talk in my family about it. It was no question: go to Beverly Hills High, uh, or go to El Rodeo for the set for the grades for junior high school for seventh and eighth grade. And now, when I went to public s- school like uh, El Rodeo, um, it was a tough transition. It was definitely a tough transition for me. The first year saw me having some some sort of weird identity issues and uh it was was a much bigger school than than my elementary school and and i thought it was going to be you know i thought i would i guess i didn't think anything i was just very very awkward about it and i was smaller than everybody so i and i listened to metal and i thought that there would be metal heads there that i could relate to and Mm -hmm. there was none of that no so and, and I and I it was completely lost on me. I thought people would you know like stop me in, in the hallway and be like, hey, what what's up with core guts? Who are they on your shirt? You know whatever. And I thought I was like, well, I, just cause, you know I thought like I had the secret knowledge because I was just like obsessed with metal, and uh, it really it defined me and increasingly defined me with heavier and heavier music and and it sort of I felt like I was also kind of becoming more alienated at the time. But it was my whole identity was wrapped up in in what I was listening to and my my identification with music. If you had to look back, what were the central traumas of that moment of that time in your life? I had a bully. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much that he was a bully; he was just a sort of misfit that, in hindsight, I looked up to. He, he sort of uh, conducted himself with impunity and uh, on on everybody, and he like, he would come up to me basically at lunch and go through my go through my my lunch 
pick out what you know all the good things my mom threw in there and uh he would just take them and i wouldn't i would just let him go you know i just sort of like like sort of like was too meek to like you know ever like do anything about it but he didn't you know he didn't even have to bully me he was just sort of like the guy that comes into town and just sort of uh you know asks for for taxes right right you know on, on his horse and just right. you know like the, you know like the, the the smoother it is the quicker it is the easier it is the better right. it is for everybody but then i got into the ha- habit of uh, going to the principal's office and telling on him and it just became this repeat thing and either the, in the in the in the principal just knew that this was like kind of like this ongoing thing that didn't even really but but my telling on him was just like you know like it didn't need to happen more than once Basically, like you know, I, I was I was a nice kid. I just just didn't feel appreciated, right? And I didn't feel like I had any power. Well, I wonder does that did that change at all when you went to Cal Arts? I mean, because it I, changed next year. It changed. It changed in eighth grade when I went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. My parents sent me to Mexico to sort of stay with my cousins, right. and I went to uh, the American school there, and I got a whole makeover. On my whole self-image, mm-hmm. in one fell swoop, I, I, I returned through the 300 CDs of, of, of metal that I had, you know, like that were like my my sort of my my rosebud, you know, like mm-hmm. this is a huge stack. I knew, mm-hmm. I'd been eating this stuff up, and I'd recycled them a million times uh, to, to 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 pay for 300 more. I knew so much metal, and then overnight, I when I by the time I came back to LA, I I, I traded all of them in and got a you know credit at uh, at compact discount and exchanged them all for the cure cabaret voltaire basically mm-hmm. you know like it, it took it down a notch instead of death metal i was listening to death rock and and, and all sorts of other stuff like and, and still fringe stuff basically my whole identity was wrapped up in in metal it created my identity it created a safe haven for it and my whole identity was sort of fixed when i was way too young and that's what I think my problem was. Well, you you once said, I really wanted to make the worst thing, the thing that even people who liked bad, terrible music wouldn't like, the stuff that people would ignore always, something really, really stupid, something that is destined for failure. What did you mean by that at that time? And where did that impulse come from? And how did this sensibility manifest itself to you? Because, I mean, surely you liked and were influenced by musicians who didn't feel this way. I mean, what was that period when you... Well, I, I mean, I, I, can, I kind of think that, like... Since I started with metal, uh, there was always something taboo about metal that made it very appealing to me. Mm-hmm. The the black the black shirts, the, the, the sort of like punk rock, the, the attitude, which made it sort of like you know uh, separated it and you know made it also asserted itself. You know, like it's sort of like your identity was a metalhead. You don't you don't go to metalhead shirt shows and and wear like a button down. You, you wear the the band. So, so, so in a sense, it was like a community that was like rem- a remote community that I could see myself as a part of somehow, even though I was separate, I was different from everybody else in my immediate surroundings. That, to me, the, the iconography in metal was evil. There was an evilness to it that was so appealing to me. That made the transition to other forms of – I started to incorporate evil into this sort of like negative dialectic thing or something. I didn't call it that, but like I just started liking it to being – then I started when I started in to discover throbbing gristle and and other forms of bad music. I sort of like thought that they were just the shunned kind of parts of music, and that's what I sort of likened everything. I started to see everything through the prism. I started to see Beethoven and or, or like like older older biographies of like you know musicians as I kind of got to know classical music and stuff like that later on. It all seemed seemed to be the same sense of tragedy was of was being like, you know, sort of cast over everything and everybody was possessed by the devil. I mean so 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 I just basically wanted to I felt like anybody that was in, that was inspired and on any level was just in, like, you know, doing the devil's bidding. So I, I became a a very sort of uh, agnostic uh, a gnostic sort of uh, missionary, you know, like I, I totally, I wasn't Satanist because I'm, I wasn't Jewish. I was very uh, having issues with my with Judaism because I was uh, I always did, but, I'm, but now I, I, I'm at home with it. It's really interesting that you say that because there's this the idea of craft 
And what does that mean in an art form like pop music that resists the idea of seriousness, you know, let's say, that prizes other things rather than craft? You know, there's energy, attitude, sensibility, and image. You know, I talked about what that means with Stephen Malkmus of Pavement, and it's an interesting path to walk. You know, you want to have fun. You want to goof off. You don't want to take it too seriously because then it becomes something else. But you also want to be good. And, you know... Malcolmus is a, a great virtuoso guitarist, and yet he maintains that he never even understood how to be successful well, in not, music. It's not rocket science. The, the whole rock and roll project, the whole the, the, what, what what took over in the Western world, getting to the place where you can have something like uh, Schoenberg. That's like the the line the lineage from Bach, from like you know influencing Beethoven. Or like influencing Beethoven and Mozart about a hundred years, you know, like, almost like you know at the end of his life. They were, he's like he's like a rock star. Mm-hmm. That these two two guys like who don't know each other, or don't really care about each other, both have are like separately like citing him as being sort of like the path. They're all like familiar with with all those other sorts of composers that are out there. But he Bach somehow codified it and turned it into a new language. And that lineage, anybody that was inspired by Bach, was basically inspired to inspire right. those who would end up being the inspiring ones. There's a lineage that's directly that that just sort of like carves itself out as time goes on, and then and then there's a, there's a just this sort of like a pantheon. There's like a a, a, a canon, a canon that's a, right. you know of, of people that like basically that are remembered and that are forgotten. And I put my I put the Cure in that canon mm-hmm. at the time. I don't know if I'd still do the Beatles. You know, uh, before that Elvis and uh, um, Frank Sinatra certainly, but I wouldn't have even been paying attention to him back then. Mm-hmm. But these are things that, like you know, I, I sort of just. Back in the day, I would just sort of like put them into the same category. They're all evil. They're all influential, and they're all uh, bad in their own way. And they did they, they they did things against the grain, and that's 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 what they discourage you from doing everywhere around you. And I knew that that was the right thing to do, so that was my excuse. Well, talking about uh, maybe the most popular American band ever, uh, the Eagles came up when Stephen Malcolmus was on the podcast, and probably with Sinatra, one of the key figures of the empire. I mean, certainly the key band in terms of sales of the latter half of the empire. Not the Beatles, not the Rolling Stones, but certainly the most successful American band ever. And Malibus had a problem because the idea of craft and what it meant to them, recording a huge, lush concept album about the disillusionment of the boomer era, where it just sounds so airless and precise and with nine singles on it. No, Malibus said that that kind of craft, in a way, is a particular case that to him just smelled of money, kind of just like rich hippie. uh, Yeah, Laurel Canyon or and you've said similar things, interestingly, about Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, who went on in the 80s and 90s to have a huge career as a producer. And you said of Dave Stewart that, quote unquote, Dave Stewart makes me want to fucking commit suicide. And again, that has to do, I guess, with, in a way, placing craftsmanship or being able to program things first. How did someone like Dave Stewart slip into the business and then produce everyone's record? And Well, become- I think the, the key is that, like, uh, uh, that it's always been an industry made for – for kids mm-hmm. those are the buying that's the buying public so it, it takes its orders from the changing tide of people buying the records so so you have like a you know a Led Zeppelin you know sort of like the, the big thing in early 70s and they're they're growing their hair longer 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 until you get to like the late 70s and then all of a sudden there's this this sort of like you know this this thing that's sort of like bubbling up there's this punk rock feeling and it's sort of like a it's threatening to upstage the sort of dinosaurs that like sort of had established themselves like so so very fixedly in, into the into the fabric of, of is the bad 70s essentially I mean glam rock is sort of like was like a precursor to that happening sort of like to, to transition into punk rock is sort of like you know making it like a little bit more fun instead of so political and made more and more daring and, and, and flash, flashy and just kind of like more kind of like irreverent. That sort of like opened the door. David Bowie opened the door for people like the Sex Pistols and people that just color their hair and not have the facility. You couldn't listen to the Yes and listen to punk rock at the same time without like having to pick one or the other. And eventually people like ended up going to the side of the Sex Pistols and Yes was forgotten for a very long time. I mean, until like you know, CDs came around way later, um, and then they had this maybe like a re- a, a, a revival. People got reminded mm-hmm. that they were pretty good, 
And then, but, but I think that video changed everything. And video, uh, video created a new singles market where there, where records were back, you know, were, were selling instead of singles, but like it was back in the 50s and stuff like that. Like the DJ, you know, Alan Freed and all that kind of right. stuff. He was making, it was, it was people, people weren't even making records back then. They were making singles and they were collecting singles on records. And then the beat took the Beatles to really sort of make like a whole concept record and revolutionize the art form and turn it into a, a, a full record to think about it as one art piece that was made in the studio, not to be represented by anything else. Not, mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was grandiose at the time. I think that like when when MTV first came around, all of a sudden singles and the way you looked right. meant this meant a big thing. So so people like Don Henley and the Eagles were all of a sudden having to be in, on screen mm-hmm. presenting themselves in a way that made them look good, which they don't know anything about. They they have to you know leave it to the the director that sort of is being hired to do all these things to make them look good make them look like they can like you know emote i mean tears for fears had had the advantage because they were like new band and they were happy to like open their mouths and fucking sing to the camera and, and spando ballet as well spando ballet was just working the fucking camera they're beautiful but like don henley they had to shroud in darkness because mm-hmm. he couldn't play that character right. very convincingly he, he could, just, didn't want to he couldn't do he, it no, he right so, yeah. so the only way to do it is just like, like like shadow his face he's right. in the total blackness and make it black and white right. and, and he's he doesn't like what he's what he's doing. He doesn't, he's selling himself to the devil. So he's gonna just basically be a fucking weird, stoic kind of guy. And that's it's a the, beautiful video, though. It, which Boys of Summer. Boys mm-hmm. of Summer. But even before that, there was like the the, the legs one. The other single from uh, that record, Building uh, the Perfect Beast. All she wants to do is dance. All she wants to do is dance. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> American Psych. Yeah, this is why I totally this fucking is- love being here. All right, so, so that was not a good single. No, no it, no, it was a terrible video yeah, too. Yeah, terrible videos. And, and and but that was the sort of like the, that's what how the old fogies, the old standbys Correct. were treated. Correct. They basically had to deal with the videos and deal with and and then there was just sort of like the realization that they you got to have some synthesizer, you got to have you got you got to soften this. This is too expensive anyway. Now the now the singles that are being made in the industry standard is actually something that you can just buy on a on a pro, you got to be able to program. You know, right. cut down on the band members. Right. Let's put it in a box. Even Miles Davis is is, is mm-hmm. not playing with the band anymore. Mm-hmm. So everybody basically had to call Dave Stewart to come and basically help them transition off acoustic guitar and make a sound that was viable for for today's market. Right. I mean, they, they all failed. Everybody, like you know, the eighties. Nobody was spared. No, that's true. That's so, true. But, but but then but it created a whole new crop of things uh, at the same time that sort of usurped and took over and and I think that like everything's sort of been a pale imitation since. And I think I got that sense from when I was a little kid, and that's what I was reacting to. I, for me, it's not like it's. I was always not retro. I was. I, I'm a, I feel like it's like psych, psychology rock. Like I, I was always trying to like hark back to my earliest memories of music, mm-hmm. and that's why they happen to be sounding '80s style. It has nothing to do with the style of music. It just has to do with the fact that I'm. I was. Uh, it was an extended project on my part to re to go back to the first the feelings I had when I first heard music and I didn't know what was going on. And that's what I was trying to always imitate when I was doing my early stuff. And it sort of has that sort of impressionistic quality of not, not you know, things being distorted and foggy and not like being like uttered improper, properly. It's because it was like a ghost that I was trying to... It, it reminded me of the ghosts that I used to hear. I didn't know how those songs were made and I didn't know what the instruments were. I had no idea about it. I was just trying to recreate that that glory of hearing the stuff when I was really young, like, like I want to rock with you by Michael Jackson. Like mm-hmm. I heard that in carpool and I was just like, that feeling was just like wiped out from that moment <clears throat> onwards. And, you know, Madonna's singles, I, which I totally like lived with, like, I mean, and she's one of the people that like has lasted, outlasted everybody and made more singles over a long period of time that like are all good. I mean, like I never meant to say anything, no, I, I wanted to get into in the second part of the podcast. I want to kind of dissect that situation, yeah. the Madonna controversy. But I did want to ask you. I mean, when Kurt Vile was on, um, this this notion of the single, the insistence of the single compared to the guy who makes the album, and with uh, before today, mature themes and pom pom, 
you're creating an experience that you want the listener to experience in a way. I mean, you must have set out to list the tracks in a certain way. Certainly there's a song in that, that, so that the album has a big meaning to it that the single doesn't. And I would imagine that that's yeah. on your mind. Of course. The, the experience of the record, I was, I was totally into long, long form records and th- thinking about it as a record, no singles. Never thought about anything in terms of singles. The way I, that I experienced records was, was in there in, as a whole I didn't think about about them as filler between singles. You know, I didn't think about records as I thought of them as the whole. I took records as being like the whole thing. I mean, I, I got Injustice for All, and I thought like, oh, every song here is important. I just mm-hmm. had to discover it. I had to figure it out, get to know these songs, and they were all important. I didn't just listen to one. Getting back to Sinatra for a minute, Sinatra moved into his greatest period after the pain of the Ava Gardner breakup. The music changed. It got deeper. It got darker. It got more romantic. When was that? It was like in is that early fifties, and right before he made the great records of the you know the, the Twilight Madman era sound. Um, do you feel that that particular pain, the pain of the breakup of romantic disappointment and despair? can influence the music after you went through it or does it just shut you down and you don't want to do anything because it can go either way you know you can go into fall into a fetal position just watch judge judy all day or um you know you can do what beck did and make sea change you know i've fallen somewhere in the middle some of the work was certainly affected by it both negatively um some positively but i'm just wondering did you feel particularly compelled after if you've had a romantic fallout oh yeah i mean i um well i never really i was probably really um I came at it from a very, very cynical and sort of uh, just damaged, sort of divorced family kind of way. So I just basically like had a, you know, very fatalistic view of marriage to begin with, and and, and even to to relationships and, and love and any, any kind of thing like that. I mean, I never thought I'd be. I didn't think I would fall in love with anybody, and I didn't think anybody would fall in love with me. And I never thought about sex in those days. I just I was an artist, so I basically didn't even want that, and that was basically my my mo. You know, I was just an artist, and I was married to my a track, and that was when I finally like you know just had hunkered down and decided to sort of believe in myself against all odds. And lo and behold, I I was able to charm some people into <laughs> actually liking me, and I, and I and I let them like me, and I thought maybe this is love. Oh, I don't poo poo it, you know. But I was never in love, and then until later when I decided that I was in love and then I pursued somebody and, and then it yeah I, I was devastated when that didn't work out and but that's only it's like my new life it's like that's like mm-hmm. way after I did all those mm-hmm. milestones and all right. that kind of stuff right. and um, uh, yeah but I, I thought I, I was done writing music as you know by 2004 I thought it was like already washed up it was like an eight year long extended recording session that was between me and me there was no playing live or having an audience or anything it was sort of like one extended freak out with me like you know waving my arms in the air trying to get people's attention but without anybody without sharing it with anybody it's like a joke between me and myself and then i got a little bit of attention and it just i just it just fed that and i was like okay well i'm totally totally noticed now i'm acknowledged i got sort of right reviews and then and all this kind of stuff and i just like was like whoa okay well shit i'm I'm not like that there goes that i mean i'm like i'm acknowledged now now what do i do i'm not inspired don't need to mm-hmm. fucking don't i'm not so desperate for it you know mm-hmm. like i just right. so what do i do i mean i'm not really inspired oh now i gotta figure it out i didn't even know that i was that i was operating at a lack mm-hmm. until then i thought i was like on like fire before that and then i, I just realized that like oh no no i'm at zero now what do i want to do with my life that's satisfied i can't write i don't have the same urge to write anymore and then the other events happened that sort of like distracted me from the that took precedence my sister got into a, a car accident. Yeah. So so I basically decided to switch gears and focus on something that wouldn't require inspiration as much. And that was getting my live thing in, in order. So basically delve, diving into figuring out a way to work with, uh, with musicians, with other people, to getting out of my comfort zone. And since I wasn't writing anyway, I was just going to like get to know my own songs that I'd recorded years before with a bunch of people and really like get them to do it cl- as close as possible to like the recordings and really not like try to 
just be d- diligent and and try to run a band and that kind of thing. And that was that coincided with me being in a relationship, so I was doing all sorts of like multitasking and bettering myself and being a diplomat and that kind of stuff and things that I never had any experience doing. And eventually, I the goal was to get like a real record deal because that would be doing something good for the band. And of course, I wasn't because I, I wouldn't do anything good for myself if it was just up to me. But but working with people that believed in me kind of got me like to thinking like okay I'll, if there's like this all the support I have to support the band we have to we have to have, have higher take it a little bit up take it up a notch so that somebody will invest in us and we can this thing might be able to live and that's what I kind of like did for like years and then that sort of ended abruptly with with a lawsuit and that kind and that kind of thing and so. That was a reality check again, and now I'm sort of pom-pom as a result of, uh, of my sort of just kind of starting over and kind of owning it a little bit more, but like sweeping the plate clean with regards to the band issue. That's why it's my name and not Aerial Pink Sonic Graffiti. That's right. So, but it's a, it's a long story to kind of like explain to everybody, right. and it's more confusing just by explanation, so... In the air, the night sky breaks your face like a mystery left uncovered. Talk to me, it's no never make believe. I last forever, come for tea. I'll be your neighbor if you want all this and more. Put your number in my phone, put your number in my Stephen Mountainous and Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend on this podcast both mentioned that the indie rock scene, whatever that is now, and the people, the journalists who write about it, have their own strict code the way the mainstream press does, but that at times it's even more reductive and exacting with its own hipster rules, and both Stephen and Ezra became exhausted by how hermetic it was, what a band could do and what a band couldn't do, and how you should express yourself and how you shouldn't express yourself, what you should align yourself with, taking to task a lead singer if he likes something that the indie scene thought was too mainstream. Malkmus said that he just could not tolerate the game anymore and getting an eye roll when he would mention that he liked R.E.M. was intolerable. He has also, like you talked about, the disaster for music creatively that was the 1980s and how Pavement was a reaction against that. Anger is an energy and there is a limit to sincerity. It doesn't get you everywhere. Some people call you a contrarian, Ariel, but only those with a corporate mindset, I think. And people don't like opinions in this corporate world we all find ourselves lost in. Opinions are considered elitist. How dare someone has an opinion or an observation that does not tow its way toward Orwellian groupthink? You know, in a way you are, have become this kind of free speech advocate for some of us. I mean, and this happened totally by accident. I don't think you were looking for this. I mean, the idea of the celebrity as role model has a horrible insistence in in this country, that we should all be neutered do-gooders who proclaim to like everything and keep our more negative opinions to ourselves. This kind of liberal delusion is also backed up by a sensationalistic media culture that really doesn't care one way or another, just as long as there is a story, because everyone is a victim. You've said that you like the Westboro Baptist Church because they challenge the notions of what it means to live in a society where free speech is supposedly valued, that if we want to be a truly tolerant society where free speech rules, then we're just going to have to to accept people like the Westboro Baptist Church with their inflammatory anti-gay mob group mentality. Do I like them as a, a gay libertarian who believes, as you do, that free speech means all speech? You know, No, I don't like them. But do I believe in a culture where free speech is a necessity and that if everyone has free speech without being punished, then we have to put up with people like the Westboro Baptist Church? And I don't believe in punishing people for free speech. It has become frightening in this country for people to express opinions and then be not only punished publicly shamed, but also lose their jobs. John Ronson, who is a Welsh journalist, just published a very interesting book about people who lost everything because of what they tweeted, called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it is a frightening and dire warning to all of us about the limits of free speech in this country. And for those 
social justice warriors seeking to condemn everyone for the slightest misstep in a tweet or in an interview. Be careful, social justice warriors. Reconsider, because you could be next. Someone wrote about you, and and this is what's wrong with everything in a nutshell. It's worth noting that his songs are pure pop perfection. Maybe someday Ariel Pink will stop saying asinine things about women, and I'll bother to engage seriously with his music again. Oh boy, what is up with that? Kurt Vile has defended you as saying, all this stuff that comes out of Ariel's mouth, he's getting it out there as a bold statement. It's really funny, and it's really American, and it's just fucking incredible. He seeks to destroy. And Beck is a huge fan, too. But there have been so many dumb things written about you lately. A particularly dumb piece in Flavor Wire by Tom Hawking, with him very, very earnestly trying to grapple with your so-called misogyny, reviewing the artist and not the art, and which I have seen nothing of in terms of following you for the last five years, in terms of you being a misogynist and, you know, being taken to task. A scuffle with a girl who maced you, uh, you saying that alpha males easily get girls and don't need to hunt them down and rape them. But they have all been, I believe, taken out of context. Tom Hawking basically places everything out of context so he can make his own anguished point about sexism in our culture, pounding his chest and demanding gender equality. And gender equality is important. It needs to happen in economic terms. I'm all for this 100%. But gender neutrality does not need to happen. And I don't even think women want gender neutrality. But it is espoused in the press as something that needs to happen and that we need to be mindful of. Uh, You have said in an interview, gender is not a construct. It's a biological truth that we want to sweep under the carpet. We share words as human beings, but we refuse to genderfy them. The interviewer during that particular interview seemed taken aback when you say this and asked, like what? And you answered, well, like orgasms. You think that means the same thing for a woman as it does for a man? Men have different customs. How come women don't go whistling after men in the streets? I kind of feel that men are obviously slaves to their penises and way that women aren't because they don't have penises. Now, the women I know in private who feel comfortable to talk about things around me, maybe because I'm a gay man, and what they admit to me is very different from what they admit publicly because they feel ashamed by whatever their natural urges are because the media has told them that they are wrong if they feel or think this way. There was an insufferable think piece by someone called Lottie Brazier in the 405, and sometimes you wonder if this is all a game, and maybe I shouldn't have taken this piece seriously, but maybe it's a joke. And and the headline was, Ariel Pink and Misogyny, Indie Pops Robin Thicke. She writes, you don't usually... She writes, you don't usually go around proclaiming an appreciation for Robin Thicke, nor his rape-endorsing, slimy byproduct that we daren't call music, blurred lines. I'm still wondering, why isn't Pharrell slammed here? I mean, Pharrell made the most money off that song as its architect. I know you wanted Thick sings in his characteristically lecherous tone. Cheers, Robin, but I think I'll stick with that new Hookworms album. As quickly as this villain is born into pop stardom, Robin Thick is quickly deemed abhorrent, and only 530 copies of his new album, Paula, are pushed to sales in its first week. Well, that's because it sucked, Lottie. Jeez, you know? Yes, everyone who purchased Blurred Lines, the millions who did and loved it, suddenly realized they had been duped by a misogynist and decided, because they were offended by it, that they would not buy the new record. Right. As his record sales plummet, so does the executioner's acts of public consensus. And Lottie naively writes this as if public consensus is a good thing. His demonic vocal cords are silenced for now, and the masses are satisfied. Ugh, the masses, as if they knew anything. We can all sleep at night knowing that our music listening is in harmony with our moral leanings. <laughs> but now us indie fans seem to have our own thick style dilemma in Ariel Pink. And I'm here to put an end to, or at least wag a stern matriarchal finger in the face of your appreciation of pom-pom. Ariel, how did we get here? What happened? She goes on to say that she likes pom-pom, but that even on a first listen, she noticed the misogyny in Black Ballerina, which is, of course, part of the power of that song. The joylessness is oppressive. What happened to the culture? Where does this girl come from? She's th- she thinks that... She thinks that uh, Robin Thicke is a misogynist <laughs> because he made... A record that was directly written for his his wife at the time, or his wife to be, or whatever pa- uh, Paula. It was a a, a love poem, or, I guess, or, or was it a way to get back with her? Was it because yeah. he was sorry? Sorry, but what she saw, what she saw was the. What she read was the commentary that that came in the wake of of his very risque video, with which which featured a very very uh, liberated willing uh, a topless uh, beautiful woman yeah. like so that's what made him a misogynist mm-hmm. 
there's no there's no uh, you know I, I I think it's a confused mindset. I think uh, I think you know it's it's really scary to think that like an expression is going to be uh, broken down like that and and turned into uh, you know like stories that people tell are all are all going to be seen as a just a facts that that people read about just like an encyclopedia it's like 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 just because you read what i said one time to somebody on the, over the phone and it gets printed it, it, it's almost like the encyclopedia britannica and i'm and i'm telling you what the story with me is you know and it's almost like i'm giving you like the rope to hang me with right even the people that like are on team ariel quote unquote mm-hmm. think they know what i feel about madonna they're like, no, no, but I totally, totally agree with you. Like, everything you said. It's like, no, actually, you don't know what I said. Right. <laughs> I, I actually love Madonna. Right. I love Madonna. I, I'm a huge fan of hers. And, and, and I wasn't trying to make any kind of – the fact that, like, anybody can discern anything from the text without, with, with, without the spin. I think it affects people's brains differently that they're not hearing me in a room talking. I mean, even now, like, I mean, you get my voice – over the microphone, and maybe people can, people can hear it. What I'm, what I mean when I'm talking about this, but, but even not seeing my body language, not being with me. I mean, I just try to be like, I just, I'm just off the cuff. I can't be rehearsed mm-hmm. on anything. So, so lots of things get thrown out there uh, with, with the expectation that they're not going to stick anywhere. But that's 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 sort of mine. That's me being naive, of course. Well, I, I want to talk about Madonna. I want to talk about the Madonna thing because after watching Sinatra, I was thinking about Madonna, who was really the queen of the later part of the empire, and who was in her own way and in a, in, in a different era as hugely influential. People might argue that it was maybe Barbara Streisand was more influential female singer than Madonna was in a way. But my problem with Madonna is that Madonna never seemed free. She seemed constricted by a role she created, and she was never funny. But no. then, but then neither is Beyonce. So you know, what does that mean? Well, that's um, that's kind of a cheap shot. After she did her com- comedy uh, routine on David Letterman, I mean, that's 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 obviously like you know coloring. She was never was a comedian. She was just a. I like her songs. Okay. Simple, simple, simply put, like I, I thought her songs, or whoever who wrote her songs, the way she performed them, I think, I think they're executed brilliantly for like more, for longer than just about anybody else comparably. I mean, like that doesn't mean that like I like Madonna or think about her in any kind of way as a person. Uh, she's probably insufferable and, and terrible coldness cold, humorless and self-seriousness the the, the haughty I feel sorry for her. I, I feel sorry for her um, like she, most people but she was well because she was <laughs> she was she was never able to really in an emotionally direct way connect with an audience it was always at a slight remove you know the professionalism which she espoused that she's joyless so, so professionalism so ambitious she was so ambitious it was well that the ambition was alienating ultimately yeah and it I is think, it is alienating I, look I agree that joylessness could create very dramatic music like I think of you know, like a prayer, deeper and deeper, ray of light. Uh, These are all this, drowned world substitute for love. That's a person that's been around for thirteen years and is still like making good music. And then, really, kind of after music, the the record. I mean, even on music, I think there's what it feels like for a girl, and maybe the title track. And then I don't know if there was really has been anything interesting since then. Yeah, but 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 in, inspiration is so hard to come by, man. Like I mean, like 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 the our favorite bands and the things that I, that I love are just a moment moment in in an artist's time i don't just accept all of robert smith's overs you know what no, i'm saying no, I, I, there's only like a microcosm of time he was just passing through he didn't know what the most redeeming qualities of his own music and craft were he tried he thought he did he thought he took those the right you know the right elements of his music and you're right but but like but we we like you know like for me for me to say somebody's a genius and for me to think highly of of, of, a, of a piece of music it just takes one three songs and i'm just like the, the most fawning fan that's true and, that, and, that's and true. i love i have i think so many people are geniuses i'm a fan of just about every genre of music there's always an exception there's it's these singles these songs or these little like these songs that nobody likes from an artist. I mean, I just, I have a personal relationship with songs. But artists age, and some age better than others, and some age gracefully with a kind of sense of humor. They kind of move into new areas. Madonna actually seems to be regressing. Does not seem to be. I don't be, think so. You know, I, I you think, think it's I, punk. You I, think it's like a punk attitude? I think she's coming, she's, she's, I think the whole thing that just happened <laughs> with uh, 
Letterman. It's none of my business. I, mean, I don't want to like you know get get in trouble for this, but I actually like Madonna. I think she she knows she's not a comedian. I think she is being herself in a, in a in a way that she hasn't been able to be before. She tried to do it on Jimmy Fallon as well. I think. The, com- the comedian part, I think, is just like a, a her going against her uh, people, like you know, kind of like micromanaging her, telling her what to do, or like you know, uh, maybe just her guy of fear, guy or Siri or yeah. whatever, like or 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 maybe like coveted, you know, like personal friends tell you know, sort of like she's kind of like not, be- she's just doing something that's her, and w- w- damn it if they don't like it, and I and I and I think I like that because I think it's going to open her up to be able to like play in the next series I, I, I like really embarrassing like Miley Cyrus's uh, 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 VMAs thing Mm-hmm. Everybody, yeah. that everybody, was great. Everybody, I loved it too. Every, but yeah, no. But I, but I mean, not only that, but like it was like it's it was a perfect setup yeah. for what was coming next. Right. And we we never know what a person's doing. You can't write off people. The second you write them off, I mean, I just love the, the this is the same story over and over again. Anything that people say in mass and everything that's just that's hated is just it's because people are wrong. It's just like I, like I love to just see it see it like unfold. If, it, if, if, if I'm wrong, it's still, like, entertaining at the very least. You know, like, uh, uh, Charlie Sheen was a f- beautiful disaster, but mm-hmm. I, I loved every step of it, and I probably, he's probably, I probably like him more now than I did before. Okay, so were you really tapping Interscope to write songs from Madonna's record? Oh, yes. I was approached via my uh, – via Cobalt. Mm-hmm. Cobalt was, is, my, is my publisher – uh, they do my admin, and they also uh, they they sort of set up co-writes and stuff like that. So this whole thing, this whole the whole article that was written about the Madonna thing, that what I said was really just a sidebar to right. to my promoting pom pom. And there, I was saying I've, I recorded it over nine months, and uh, oh really? What, what were you doing? You know why why it takes so long? And I was like, well, because I was just doing it. When I when it was convenient and I was I had other sources of income so I didn't have to do it all at once, and you know sort of like into like a three month period of time like normal you know when, when the money runs out. Right. I was basically not beholden to anybody and I was had work on the side and I was doing things. So I basically and I'm like what what do you mean you were co writing with who? And I was thinking of like what projects I can actually talk about because I I, I can't really talk about most of the projects that are on the. You know, on board to actually come out, and I and I instantly thought of that the sort of aborted or the aborted thing with Madonna as one of the things that I could talk about because it was didn't amount to anything. And ultimately, I just basically I said I didn't get the the job ultimately. So it, but I did. Uh, yeah, I did. I did go into the studio, and they they were they were setting up a band camp with all these different songwriters. They did they did it with Rihanna, and it sort of worked out where you have ten different like producers. And then getting together in different combinations and making this sort of smorgasbord, and everybody gets like you know like like a percentage you know for the song. Right. So so it's like an experiment that sort of like we you know was, was being tried with 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 the Madonna record. And I was sort of paraphrasing what what Interscope had told me about Madonna. I wasn't <laughs> saying what I felt about Madonna. They were they were saving Madonna's career because the last record didn't do too, too well, and so she had just been signed to Interscope, and they were doing damage control, so they were getting songs because. Well, the Australian journalist quoted you as saying, "Since the first record, it's been a downward slide." Well, that was my opinion. Yeah, Ray of Light is not cool, and all the stuff she's done after that, it's not like it matters. It really shows a drain of value. You go on to say she just can't have Avicii, her producer or whatever, come up with a new techno jam for her to gyrate to and pretend that she's twenty years old. She actually needs songs, and I. I'm going to be partly responsible for that return to values things. Anyway, supposedly Madonna sees the gyrating part. I think is what gets them on edge. It's just like- <laughs> anyway, Madonna, supposedly Madonna sees this interview of yours and has a fit since she has no sense of humor. And then Guy O'Siri, her manager, instead of explaining that this could be kind of cool, Ariel Pink writing for you or his transparency thing, whatever, Guy sends out a tweet because they are both so offended because you are not respecting them and you are, I guess, quote unquote, fired from the process. Says. No, they didn't know. They didn't know anything about it. I'm sure they didn't. No, of course not. Okay, it was. It was. I'm sure it was like it, it, I was nixed from the from the from. You know, I, I they didn't do anything with me because ultimately, whatever we played, whatever whatever songs we made, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples that were just sort of like you know that were shown to Madonna, and she just sort of took a preference to one, and so. I don't know how it, how what the, what what happened with the rest of the album, but I was basically in on board, doing some sort of like you know like early trial runs. 
to see what I was, you know, to see what I could do in a studio, you know, given like a, like a, a given amount of time with certain other people at the controls. So it was like a big, big collaboration. And I was just one of other people. It certainly wasn't the right the the main the main thrust of it. So well, she she dresses it in mojo. She did, and yeah. she, she, and I don't think she's she's handled it badly uh, at all. I mean, I, I, although I heard that she does think I'm a crazy man. Yeah, that, she calls you. He's a crazy. Well, person. she just she just cowed to the 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 conversation that was just basically being. She, she had to deal with me for some for, because of her fans. I mean, that's, that's her. She wouldn't have even paid attention if it weren't for all these people tweeting me, calling me sick, and 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 saying that I should be. A shot, and and then eventually, like Gaiosiri came out of the you know out of the darkness, you know, like to sort of like mellow out the the peasants in in, in the court, and basically said, we don't know who Ariel is, and don't worry, he's not going to be on the record, <laughs> and we would never do it with a mermaid. I know, uh, the mermaid. The well, that's mermaid. cute. Okay, that's, 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 that's so so he didn't oh. say anything too mean. No, but 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 you know, all the fans were were you know were. It was a good little bit of attention. I was just the, the shocking thing for me was the was Grimes. Well, I just I, I just wanted to go into the Grimes thing because she a bit. should know better. Grimes, who is the Canadian singer songwriter, and I'm stressing Canadian because Canadians seem to be the most offended of them all if someone has a negative opinion about something. The Canadian comic Norm Macdonald was incensed when I tweeted that Canadian author Alice Munro was overrated after she won the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's just an opinion, and I still believe it. And Norm was so insistently bullying about this opinion of mine that he went batshit crazy over it on Twitter and wouldn't let it go and I just ignored him. But getting back to Grimes, she tweets... Errol Pink's delusional misogyny is emblematic of the kind of bullshit every one woman in this industry faces daily. And is this another overreaction from a millennial snowflake, or does she have any kind of point? I mean, Grimes automatically assuming this is misogynistic is a problem in the culture. She thinks you are attacking a woman instead of an artist, and that there should be a different line of criticism for men than there is for women. And to me, that is fucked up. That is much more worrisome than... uh, But we're not going to talk about what's fucked up about them because that's not what we're talking about. Okay. That, you know what I'm saying? But to be addressed and to push it into a context where people don't just automatically accept Grimes... Well, the people that are accept, automatically accepting Grimes are, are of a specific type and they're, they can definitely support Grimes. They can definitely hate me. I have no problems with that. It's just that like, if Grimes has had any... Well, she talks about this industry. I mean, I don't know. You, you don't hear about people being getting upset about being misquoted anymore you know there there used to be like a whole kind of like you know everybody knew the media was just like kind of like journalists like all throughout the 80s everybody was like you know well that was taken out of context we all know that like you know this is just uh, I didn't say all this and even even like really big uh, op-eds and interviews with you know with with Courtney Love and 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 with good writers even uh, you know, conducting the interviews and stuff like that, like Dennis Cooper or something like that. You know, like I mean, they're all those. There would always be like disagreements about what the facts were, about what was said, about being paraphrased, about, about warping the the piece to sort of like connote something that like the artist didn't actually mean. And that's just, that's just gone. It's I mean, whatever is said on any website is taken as fact by other journalistic websites yeah. because they don't have true. the time. To actually fact check on the clock, which is basically churning constantly so quickly that like you basically – the facts don't even matter anymore. Pitchfork has to like run this because all these other uh, magazines have already decided to run it, be- just re- you know, reprinting word for word whatever it was that the guy- first guy said. There's no like kind of like confirm- checking to see if it's true. And nobody decided to call up and see if I was talking bullshit. Make right. that make that like the handle they of the don't. article. No, they they, they'd rather not. They'd rather not. They'd rather just take their risk, take the risk of misquoting somebody, and they wouldn't want to be caught. You know, they wouldn't want to not cover something that was covered everywhere else. Right. That's more suspicious to them. So, so basically, nobody. Ha- everybody reads something, and and what is basically the artwork of a disgruntled writer who's got his own career and sort of like you know intentions and his own his own sort of impression of what I'm what I want to say and what he wants the people to think he can persuade people very easily just by putting his slant on it I mean he, he the way that he framed the whole piece I would think I was a jerk but I don't but I don't, I mean, I don't believe it for I, I think anybody who knows the you know the art of uh, of persuasion and sort of like you know the bullshit of the industry 
of media and like you know of public opinions and all that kind of in the, in the way that they're so molded i mean everybody knows that like it's it's not real that like these aren't the real you can't really say what somebody feels per se you don't know right but it kind of does get back to that this book by john Welsh that, that tracks five people who were working in corporations who tweeted dumb things their opinions about stuff and were somewhat uh fired and there was a massive hatred on oh, social media God. and it influenced their lives to a degree where no, some of them still can't find work no i, I, I mozilla Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's not a joke. I mean, these people. So these are the, the, the sort of the, the younger droves that are all kind of like rallying together. And they since they like kind of like own social media anyway. The baby boomer generation is pretty much. Uh, they're not even like in the conversation. No. No. They, they don't even know what's happening. No. They don't even know that they were like that, that they lost the media already. Right. But the younger generation doesn't have anybody that's basically like countering them to give them like a little like whipping every now and then. Say, hey, no, hey, stop. Right. It's basically up to me and you, and it's and and and, and we're not really going to get very far with that either. They're just going to have to learn it for themselves. I'm afraid that they're going to come back around and be the the exact opposite of what they are right now. And there's going to be even less tolerance for gays and less tolerance for all that stuff in about. 20 years' time. I wanted to know, we talked about the Robin Thicke, uh, Blurred Lines, uh, uh, the reaction to that song from that young female journalist. I was just curious. I, was, I just wanted to get your opinion on what did you think of the ultimate lawsuit with the Marvin Gaye family winning over, you know, saying that the, the song had, in fact, ripped off Marvin Gaye, and they were awarded $7 million. Like you said, man, it's Pharrell. He should have been the one that was uh, saddled with the lawsuit. Right. But there's not really – there's nothing – Pharrell is, is neatly tucked away in the producer role, and he's not front and center. Uh, uh, he's, he's getting all the rewards. He got all the rewards on the back end, and also on, he didn't have to uh, incur the risk of public opinion to sort of like damn the thing and, and, and impact his career. He's True. basically he gets to like he like gets to like it's like you know sort of like horizontally always being in a, a part on all the things that happen in music, but whatever fails, fails and nobody nobody's nobody cares about it all that much. And he's not like he's not making it for for he's not he's not getting involved to make it in those in those in those in those events, but he definitely gets the credit for making it when when it's successful. But he's also immune to it. To the he's the one who made the beat, so it's or that he's the one who stole the beat with itself. Right. Poor, poor. Uh, you know, I, I I remember watching Robin Thicke when he was when he first started out. And he was just called Thick. Yeah, I remember that too. It was like on like Today in LA in the morning. And he had mm-hmm. long hair. He looked like the Vandra Banhart. <laughs> and he was just like a jammy Rikwai kind of kind of kind of dude. And I remember thinking, what a tool! But like he was like a real musician actually. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was he was he somehow had like this Remy Zero kind of. This mm-hmm. re- He's a musician, musician. And I remember seeing his dad before that, like growing up with his dad on Growing Pains and thinking like, who's this kid think? He's he's a privileged kid, but he's he's actually really good at music. Didn't listen to him, but... Um, Well, that kind of leads to, finally, how do you make money in the music business now? Uh, I don't make that much money. Or Uh, anybody, more or less. You you tour, and that's, 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 I think, the... That's increasingly becoming less of a appealing prospect to a lot of artists but i think it's from the festivals the festivals that are t- sort of taking over and it's all getting basically that's the only way maybe there's something in the sync realm that works out i mean i think i think if the industry if you're an artist i don't think you you can really make money i think you're just basically you could borrow money that eventually will be taken back from you and you can make take out loans that you don't really think are loans and they'll fuck you over just like they always did but typically, I, I think it, the ones who are uh, making money are, are the the sort of the people that are destroying it, and uh, and it's sort of like a group effort. I mean, like like the labels and the but the people, the people that are buying Spotify and all that kind of stuff. But like I like YouTube, you know. Like I, I will defend YouTube any day over Spotify. You don't need to pay anything. You once said that the quality of music in terms of mainstream culture has gotten so watered down year after year, generation after generation, you can really see the end coming near. You're dealing with kids, too, and while Mm -hmm. the kids decide, there are new kids around the corner every day. They're getting subjected to whatever the people in control think they want. But since they don't have any idea about what quality is, since they really don't care about quality, the quality gets lessened every year. That's very provocative. I said something. Yeah, I remember when I I said that to Simon Reynolds, I think. Maybe. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's 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 upon us, uh, and I think that it's maybe it just says something about uh, a culture that's sort of been around for a little bit too long, and it's just an inevitable kind of thing. Like these things have to come to an end. The '60s can't last forever, mm-hmm. and Paul McCartney's. Uh, domain is just you know his his legacy just has to end at some sort of you know with, there has to be an overthrowing of the czar you know the, the romanov empire must fucking end and then there has to be something else but we're like still lumbering a little bit like you know it's still being kind of forced on us there hasn't been any reckoning for the revolution and we're not going it's not going to come from within very successfully I mean, I think that the, the youth of, t- of tomorrow, the future, is in the hands of, of other people. And so we just have to let them make their mistakes and hope that we're spared. They don't drag us out into the streets, you know, and beat us up when I, I release a record that just sucks, you know? <laughs> don't hate me, please. <laughs> Bradley, blue sky. 